This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in the latest installment of our Not One Step Back reading series, we sit down to discuss the separation of the economic and the political in capitalism by Ellen Makeson's Wood. So this is the latest installment in our Not One Stem Back uh, reading series. Uh, this is by an author that I'm surprised we haven't really got to yet. Um, part of the uh, whole uh, sort of Brennerite school. In a lot of ways, more Brennerite than Brenner. Um, it's pronounced, I believe, Ellen Maskins Wood. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't Ellen sure about Maskins the real Wood. name. I usually just say E.M. Wood or Ellen Wood. But Ma- what's up, Ellen Wood? I'm gonna oh Makesons Makesons yeah I'm sounding Makesons. it out now. There we go. Ellen I've... Makesons Wood, and what we read was uh, the separation of the economic and the political in capitalism. Uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about Wood. Yeah, like I said, sort of Wood, part of the whole uh, kind of Brenner school, um, kind of part of the whole political Marxist school. Um, I guess my first encounter with her was in the Origin of Capitalism where she more or less argues that the emergence of capitalism was a sort of um, contingent historical development that evolved out of agrarian class relations uh, in England specifically, and how certain, basically certain kind of perverse incentives developed that created the sort of preconditions for the kind of surplus, like this kind of uh, surplus extraction that could develop into capitalism. Um, I haven't read it in a minute, but that, I think that's kind of the broad, the broad argument of it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the, the strong Brenner thesis where you, you end up having a, because, because like the transitions between mode of productions are so strongly political. You kind of look at the formation of modern English capitalism as a, the ultimate expression of like a, kind of pathological form of development <laughs> yeah yeah she well she argues that it was very like historically contingent and just might not have happened if like a few if a few things had turned a bit differently and th- there just might never have been capitalism which is interesting interesting to think about though do we do we think we'd end up with some kind of mercantile system i mean what what would be a mode of production that came out of say you know the like italian city states or something like that i still think it's kind of hard to imagine the rising merchant class in feudalism not gaining power in some way even outside of england eventually yeah. Yeah, it's tough to say, um, but that, that was kind of the impression I got. Like, I mean, I actually stuff. do agree with you, and I agree with her that it is historically contingent, and that you know, slightly different versions or modes of production could have arisen from that off of different foundations. Mm-hmm. Well, this is sort of a question that's like, all right, is there like a tendency for? 
productive power to grow over history? One, that's one question. Like, what does that mean? Is that true? And then two, if so, would that have made capitalism in inevitable? I think probably the kind of, this is the kind of like logic that she doesn't like. She doesn't like the idea that productive power like tends to grow over human history. Right. Or, that's not even true to feudalism. I mean, you know, in a, on a basic level, feudalism was incredibly decentralized and relative to the time of antiquity, there was actually population decline. And so it's, it's hard to see until later in feudalism, um, that social system as a kind of direct increase of productive forces when its foundations were the breakup of the Roman Empire and kind of a fracturing yeah, I, of the previous I mean, social system, even it, though it eventually culminated in some advancement. I mean, it does bring up like sort of an interesting alternative of what if the sort of current mode of production was more tied to like, say, what could be class she sort of still classifies as like an Asiatic mode of production, I guess, like, yeah, but she kind of uh, defends. Yeah, she kind of defends it. And basically, like, you don't really have this, like, I, I believe what she's trying to describe is like a breakaway between like, you know, the politics and, and like private life, sort of like economic well, and the political. Like right kind of but it's not it's not yeah there's a break off that happens with the development of capitalism that essentially uh what would usually what would be in the political under um feudalism would becomes more under uh becomes pro uh, economic under capitalism as a process it am i not wrong yeah, well, she, she talks about how, like, in feudalism, surplus extraction was, you could say, like, extra economic was basically tied into your rights to, you know, the political lord, the lord, or whoever, you know, um, your sort of protection person was, you know, in, in the social hierarchy. Um, whereas in capitalism, um, when all, like, basically the, in feudalism, the quote-unquote state and all the tasks of that and the and the um, expropriation is all tied into one single person whereas in capitalism the two like the state sort of stands outside of the market in some ways and the like the surplus extraction is based and control over individuals takes place like within the labor process but the broader like managerial aspect of like this society as a whole and you know the law and all that stuff is is in this kind of separate sphere that the capitalists only control indirectly right whereas there's sort of direct command over individuals and their direct um the direct task of surplus extraction takes place in this private sphere controlled completely by the capitalist who pretty much has absolute authority i think maybe if like you know this well, I mean, I guess maybe one could argue in a way that, like, the sort of quote-unquote Asiatic modes of production did develop in a way that's, like, not exactly capitalism, 
but still distinctly modern per se with like um with like the sort of like stalinist model it's i don't know if modern is quite the right word but it is yeah. um it's more maybe admin it's more administrative maybe yeah i i mean modern in terms of like technology and that sort of thing like what do you mean but it's distinctly like asiatic as problematic as the the the, the asiatic as in like the development is distinctly and exploitation is specifically tied within like the state it's still there's no the there's no division there's no divide divide in between like the economic and the political yeah to, yeah um if i could quote um Elizabeth Humphreys, who, who writes some good stuff about this. Um, the nature of the capitalist class in bourgeois society was that it was itself internally divided by competition. Therefore, it required a state that was formally separate from its individual members and standing over against them. And where all common institutions are set up with the help of the state and are given a political form. It follows that the historic uniqueness of bourgeois society was that the capitalist class ruled politically via sta a state that was formally separate from the private existence of that class's individual members, each of one whom already ruled socially in their respective firm or business. As a result, capitalist class political rule appeared as its own opposite, thus the state appeared to stand over all of society, including the capitalist class in the general interest. And so, you know, I, I actually found this, uh, this wood was really, this wood reading really validated, um, you know, what I've read from Humphreys and, and other anti-politics people on the development of the state. And I thought it was very, a very interesting reading for that. Um, well, I mean, this, the state, the state is a thing that like kind of stands like, like stands outside and like mediates class relations, like isn't. I mean, at least according to Engels, isn't like necessarily unique to capitalism, um, but yeah, I mean, like the the relationship between I think what Wood is arguing here is that the relationship between the political and the economic has sort of like shifted throughout different like modes of production. Well, well, yeah, feudalism emerged on the soil laid by the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, in this chaos and decentralization, you have the people seeking protection found this people seeking economic and military power. You develop these scattered forms of allegiance to warlords, nobility, manners, and these networks of dependency grow, which concretize into a, a really lasting social system. Um, but yeah, the surplus resources float upward, not by the productive process itself as markets make the case today, um, but through taxation and tribute taken by implicit or actual force. And, you know, I mentioned yeah. that insecurity because the implicit force was not just outright violence, but in a society ravaged by frequent war, exclusion from the protection bound up in servitude at various places on the social totem pole. So thus, particularly in the later feudal period where the bonds were made legal, a serf could raise their status with respect to exploitation through what could be called the political process in a way capitalist citizens can't. You know, Europe was basically ruled by a kind of medieval mafia and the bourgeoisie that overthrew it was seeking this absolute formal political emancipation that we now have. Under capitalism were these legally free citizens necessary for free competition, but universal suffrage and the winning representation have obviously been these hollow and partial victories. You know, this really gets at what's revolutionary about the bourgeois revolutions 
Um, but then it's our, our social powers that we're, we're still alienated from. Yeah. Before we get into the more into the weeds with this, I think we should go off to like her first initial argument, mm -hmm. which is uh, directly aimed at GA Cohen and like the general concept of like a base and a superstructure. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, there's two versions of this um, article, one of which appears in the book Capitalism Against Democracy or Democracy Against Capitalism. I forget which. Um, and in that one, she removes the references to G.A. Cohen, which personally I think was a good move. <laughs> but um, let's talk about the article version because that's the one we read. Um, so she takes on G.A. Cohen's highlighting of a material social split wait wait why did she remove it though i think she removed it because well if if, if you're if you're asking me it's because um she probably realized that she slightly misrepresents jay cohen's argument a little bit because his um his his hang up about the difference between material and social isn't about the base and the superstructure. His hang ups on material and social are about the productive forces versus the relations of production. Uh, yeah, productive forces versus the relations of production. Um, uh. So that's a slightly more sophisticated point than she's granting Cohen. Yeah. Yeah. I actually kind of like felt that a little bit. Like I was thinking to myself, so what does this necessarily have to do with the base and the superstructure? Like I thought all mm -hmm. like social re like social relations of class and productive forces were both in like the base of like uh, a base and su yeah. superstructure dynamic. And so we got into this a bit in our postone episode, a dialectic about nothing. And uh there's a sort of long running debate over whether Marx or we should have put the productive forces in the base. G.A. Cohen definitely does not put the productive forces in the base. And he has like a comment about it where he acknowledges that there's, you know, a couple of Marx quotes where he puts it in the base, but then, you know, like scripture, he cites other ones and says, I think there's overwhelming, you know, reasons for Marx to take the productive forces out of the base. And so this is one of these really lovely, long-running uh, debates in Marxian scholarship. But I think for our purposes, like, I don't know, I guess it depends what what we mean by base and not necessarily what all these scholars mean by base. <laughs> right. I actually think I have a, I might have a quote that's clarifying from volume three on this base superstructure business. Is that all right, go for it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the specific economic form, you know, actually we could talk about it in two different quotes because there's in German ideology where he says the words idealistic superstructure. Um, and then there's a quote in Capital Volume 3. Um, I mean, I'm game. 
the, the German ideology quote is civil society embraces the whole material intercourse of individuals within a definite stage of the development of productive forces. It embraces the whole commercial and industrial life of a given stage and insofar transcends the state and the nation, though on the other hand, again, it must assert itself in its external relations as nationality and internally must organize itself as state. The word civil society emerged in the 18th century when property relations had already extricated themselves from the ancient and medieval community. Civil society as such only develops with the bourgeoisie, the social organization evolving directly out of production and intercourse, which in all ages forms the basis of the state and the rest of the idealistic superstructure has, however, always been designated by the same name. So I think all he's really saying there is, you know, though the kind of perfected distinction between state and society, public and private, only forms with the bourgeoisie, it's always been the social that is determining. Like in, in Poverty of Philosophy, he says, truly one must be destitute of all historical knowledge, not to know that it is the sovereigns who in all ages have been subject to economic conditions, but they have never dictated laws to them. Legislation, whether political or civil, never does more than proclaim, express in words, the will of economic relations. Was it the sovereign who took possession of gold and silver to make them the universal agents of exchange? Or was it not rather these agents of exchange which took possession of the sovereign and forced him to affix his seal to them and thus give them a political consecration? So I think, you know, and you and that isn't just young Marx, you know, with his critique of politics. This also is in volume three. So he says the specific economic form in which unpaid surplus labor is pumped out of direct producers determines the relationship of dominations and servitude. As this grows directly out of production itself and reacts back upon it in turn as a determinant. On this is based the entire configuration of the economic community arising from the actual relations of production and hence also its specific political form. It is in each case the direct relationship of the owners and the conditions of production to the immediate producers, a relationship whose particular form naturally corresponds always to a certain level of development of the type and manner of labor, and hence to its social productive power, in which we find the innermost secret, the hidden basis of the entire social edifice, and hence also the political form of the relationship of sovereignty and dependence, in short, the specific form of the state in each case. This does not prevent the same economic basis, the same in its major conditions, from displaying endless variations of the innumerable different empirical circumstances, natural conditions, racial relations, historical influences, acting outside, etc. Um, so all taken all together, um, it doesn't sound like it's this, I don't know, the way he's talking about it seems specific in each time Marx talks about basis and superstructure. He's, he's talking about how the political doesn't have this actual absolute power over society um, and things like religion, you know, fall into this too, um, but that they are reflections of underlying broader social development. But that doesn't mean that they don't kind of reflect back on that social development in any way. Right, right so, yeah. so all of this is to say that Marx's own writings seem to align maybe more with what Cohen is describing than what Wood is describing. Yeah. yeah is that I, wrong? Uh, yeah, I, I don't feel that's wrong. Like, basically, like, I, I really got the base superstructure thing directly out of German ideology, and I, I, I don't 
you know, I generally assumed that, you know, social relations were a part of the base, you know, base, like, those social relations being that of class. Right. It's, like, the fundamental part of, like, uh, Marx. And I, I, I don't know to what extent that would necessarily mean that like civil society is a part of the base because right. I, I don't think that is what he's specifically referring to when think, he talks about social relations it's specifically of class relations in like the later work where it's like i'm oh, sorry go on. yeah yeah I was just, just, uh, <laughs> go ahead sorry jake go on I no you go I'm, you go. I'll go. Capitalist civil society is class relations. That's what that's what bourgeois society is. It's those market relations and that competition. I was gonna say, I think what she's trying to do here is um basically insist that the the regime of the maintenance of private property is an explicitly political project. And she's basically trying to denaturalize the concept of private property, which you can you can kind of end up reifying that if you lump that in as just kind of a part of like the natural, you know, um, almost as like a technological necessity to economic development, you know. And so yeah, yeah. I think I think what she's trying to insist on is that because, the you know, the political component of being a capitalist is, you know, asserting that property rights are the most important rights of all and you know reinforcing that is integral to the bourgeois political project so that if 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 that becomes through um basically going deep into like this economic analysis that ends up kind of reifying that as or naturalizing that as a part of human intercourse that is inextricable then you end up in this you basically just end up back in like bourgeois economics. So I think that, I think that's kind of what she's trying to get at here. But I think I could see why she deleted the base superstructure stuff in like a later edition because it seems kind of besides the point. Well, um, she didn't delete the base superstructure stuff. She what, like what, which elaborated. She, she deleted the stuff about GA Cohen. Like mm, she okay. made she made a bunch of the same points, but didn't use him as a as a punching bag, and you know for good reason. I think. <laughs> I mean, I think. You know, just to quickly defend forces of production like technological determinism. I mean, yeah, okay. She's really emphasizing like the social aspect of these, you know, productive relationships. But you know, it, it in principle, you could basically have shifts in nature itself or in technology that would pretty radically necessitate like an immediate shift in the relations of production. Um, so like there is, there, there is, there is, there is a certain, I mean, the relations, there's a question of to what extent relations of production are necessitated by nature and by technological imperative. Um, I think she's right to skew more on the sides of it's, it's basically determined by, you know, the historical contingencies of development and, you know, uh, just the configuration, the sociological configurations that have resulted in, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, but there, there is, there is like the material basis for things does set the table for all that. And what we do with it, obviously there's a lot of wiggle room, but there is, there is a certain, you know, kind of like 
you know, materialist determinism that should be defended to an extent. And I think she would agree with that if you look at if you look at the article closely. The the thing about like a lot of the good Brennerism is that it's not like totally incompatible with some of the more like technologically deterministic stuff. Right. Like because we're not disagreeing that economic history happened. It's a question sort of of what kind of explanations are acceptable? Is it acceptable to gesture towards the needs of like the productive forces, which seems like a pretty abstract thing? Um, yeah. Like, is is that have any explanatory value? In the Marxist tradition, it you know it tends to have like I don't know. Yeah, there tends to be some like there tends to be credibility towards that, even though there's a lot of like jumps you have to make to get there, at least in the Marxist tradition classically. And it's not really spelled out until a lot later, like how, how there would be plausible mechanisms behind these things, which I don't know. I know it's a crank kind of territory. And especially if you're reading wood, she seems pretty, you know, she seems, she has like a lot of good objections, but I, I kind of see her on like as, um, denying something that I think is maybe important and yeah. to the extent that she's arguing against something that I think she is correct to argue against. I don't know how tangible her alternative is or how uh, stable. I, her I, I feel, I feel like you lose something in like, in particular with Marx's critique of capital and that capital is, is generally an alien force onto humanity itself. Like, that's something that's continually relevant in Marxist critique. Like, this just sort of like, uh, you have like the earlier on, or earlier on al concept of alienation, which, you know, workers are alienated from each other in their competition. They're alienated from the, from the products of their labor. They're alien, and they're alienated from each other. And this sort of alienation grows as capital becomes more and more powerful, but that's an early part of the work and then you have like sort of capital as like an alien force coming back in terms of like in like the third volume of capital when he's describing the falling rate of profit you know this is something that the capitalists individually can't do anything about this is because they are driven by you know capital this alien force this drive for profit pushes them towards their own annihilation and in doing so pushes the whole of humanity towards its own sort of annihilation in the form of crisis of capital and currently with global warming. So you have these like two layers of this alien force of capital, this critique of this alien force of capital that just gets sort of lost when you like make it solely political rather than a force that is structural and beyond the necessary beyond necessarily the the sort of actions of, of humans i mean humans individually or even like as collectives i i guess um so here's something she says later um a mode of production is not simply a technology but a social organization of productive activity and a motive mode of exploitation is a relationship of power. Furthermore, the power relationship which conditions the nature and extent of exploitation is a matter of political organization within and between the contending classes. Um, so, 
I mean, kind of yes and no. I mean, at least within capitalism, like, the proletariat can, like, negotiate for better conditions within that relationship, but it can't necessarily overturn that relationship itself. Um, I mean, in... I mean, yeah. I mean, unless it basically overthrew the entire, entire system, which I guess is, is which I guess is kind of like uh, what she's saying. But like, in, in the final analysis, the relationship between appropriators and producers rests to a great extent on the relative strength of classes. This is largely determined by the internal organization and the political forces from with uh, with which each enters into the class struggle. Uh, for example, as Robert Brenner has re- recently argued, the varying patterns of development in different parts of late medieval Europe can be accounted for in large part by differences in class organization, which characterize class struggles between lords and peasants in various places according to their specific historical experiences. Um, yeah, so he talks about like different forms of like aggregarian class uh, conflict, which tended to be ta- which tended to be like tied up to certain historically specific patterns of development. Sort of a topic near and dear to my heart. I find the um, <clears throat> I might have gone on this tangent before on the show, but I find the Brennerites, and the basically the followers of Robert Brenner and Robert Brenner himself, uh, to be kind of fun because they're sort of like um, they're. I would say that they're like from within analytical Marxism, but a lot of their well-known pieces are against the most visible analytical Marxists. So it kind of seems like it's an attack, like on them. And I think they'd probably deny the association, really. But, like, I don't know. Historically uh, speaking, it's not true. Yeah. But like, they're from the same milieu and, like, from literally the same groups, like, and are using and are doing the dictionary definition of analytical Marxism. They're, like, applying the research norms of, of their discipline, economic history, to a Marxist concept and trying to evaluate you know, whether it holds up. So mm-hmm. like, even in, in the ways that I think they like, don't quite capture something that I like about Marx, a lot of the Brennerites are doing that because they're following like, you know, the, the norms of their of their field. And there's something virtuous about that, even if I think they miss something. Um, yeah, it's nice to read something that reads, that reads like actual like history and not just like a, you know, fucking pamphlet, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah, no, um, this like actually, I was in, in the book form, like in uh, Democracy Against Capitalism, like it's like a segue out of pamphlet brain because she's a really clear writer and she write her writing is so much better than Robert Brenner's. Like, Robert Brenner, you know, might be this more influential, like original figure, but Wood is like such a so much, much more of like a pleasure to read. It's, yeah, um, it's she, she's very lucid, it's not it, it, extremely it, it, clear. Yeah. Um, also, um, like the, I, I guess we're going back to like the division between the economic and political that develops under capitalism, right? Or yeah, we, um, we, we can get into that. Yeah. Uh, fuck it. I'm just like, basically, the sort of formulation leads them to like denying imperialism as a thing. How so? Um, well, yeah. Essentially, capital doesn't really act through these, like, sort of, like, straightforward, doesn't really act through, like, sort of direct, you know, extra economic exploitation. So, essentially, super exploitation, which, you know, is kind of reliant upon, like, states to enforce 
in monopoly and like sort of the monopoly capital version uh, of the monthly review kind and in lenin's own original imperialism pamphlet is basically reliant upon that so brennerites tend to flat out deny imperialism in that way which i i'm not necessarily opposed to i I'm, I'm kind of neutral on this because i need to get more into the literature to be honest but I, I i'm just generally not sure how i feel about that huh you know i haven't like noticed that as a tendency at all um is yeah like I, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine this because robert brenner that takes a similar turn as Althusser does for a period of his work that is most friendly to Maoists, namely when refocusing historical materialism instead of on productive forces on this, you know, social reproduction framework. And basically the turn away from productive forces determinism is perfect for Leninists and Maoists and kind of people that want to develop socialism you know, without having full-blown ass capitalism, like right, it it's only really apparent in like Charles Post's article on the labor aristocracy, where he argues against the concept of a labor aristocracy. Well, um, Charlie Post is de is definitely a um. He's I don't know. There's a lot of he seems to me to be like a, a really what's the word? I don't know like a more ISO friendly form of Brennerism that I'm used to seeing. So I'm, I'm used to seeing like, I don't know, it's like dark Brenner stuff like endnotes. You know what I mean? Like right. I'm used to seeing like, like a sort of deconstructive uh, <laughs> application of, of. Yeah. Brenner. I, 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 I think that might actually even be close to Brenner's own politics. Honestly, I don't, I don't Brenner, know. Brenner does, he was in solidarity or something. Like, yeah, he was in solidarity. He was one of the more uh, radical analytical Marxists because. <laughs> wait, which solidarity? I know there were, there were different solidarities. The U.S. Groups. one. Okay. Well, yeah. Was that? Can we talk about that a little bit? CLA. Okay. I don't, I don't really know dick about solidarity U.S. Hmm. I, I think it's a post-trot organization because Charles, Charles Post is also in it i think mm. from what i remember he's also in it it's like a weird post-trot organization where I, I i think they read a lot of like rosa luxembourg like i got okay. that i got okay. that vibe from uh La charles post last article in like the jacobin which was critiquing uh a right reading the cross of carl kotsky mm. oh that's good uh, yeah uh, but yeah, the, but yeah, uh, Charles, Charles Post like argued against imperialism and like made a direct reference to the author that we're reading right now okay. and basically used the line that essentially under capitalism, there's a separation between like the economic and political that, you know, essentially like imperialism doesn't really exist because of this separation because you know the state doesn't really do uh the well, direct I, exploitation that that would and, just seem to be like a, a a some that seems like out of the spirit of her point because isn't the whole point of the essay is that like capitalism artificially reinforces 
a false sense of separation or like an ideological sense of separation that is like socially real because it's fetishized or something like that. But in reality that, you know, if, maybe she wouldn't put it this way, but throughout human history, you know, like um, these activities right. are actually more or less unified. She doesn't want to say that. In fact, she says she offers some kind of unitarian thesis as like in opposition to political Marxism, the latter being what she identifies with, but it still ends up seeming very similar to that response. I'm not really right, sure. It's exactly. I mean, yeah, she argues that it the state reinforces class relations. It works on behalf of the capitalist class. Mm -hmm. However, she still maintains that there's a separation in terms of like, the, the state doesn't carry out direct exploitation. The capitalist class directs act, does direct exploitation there. And basically okay. the point of the Charlie Post article is like essentially imperialism on that theoretical level is impossible given that the cap, that the state doesn't really act out in exploitation, which, you know, imper like imperialism as conceived of as by Lenin and all the and the later predecessors of Lenin is not it's necessary for like the state to do exploitation uh, and super exploitation. That sounds that sounds like a really shitty version of the imperial theory of imperialism, because I, I would imagine being able to do stuff that's more in the sort of economic realm, thinking about market power or whatever. Like it's not all invasions like a lot of. Yeah. Things. Especially quote ne like neo-colonialism or, or whatever you want to call it, like the newer forms of like the, the post-colonial order in that like well, you know sense. Well, I like mean I, still there I, a I little don't bit. Think he, I, I, I don't well the super exploitation thing is it's kind of weird because I don't thinking about it's been a while since I read the article, but I think he was trying to argue that like super exploitation is still like direct directed to the state or what it just it had to be like carried out through the state yeah. something like that i don't i don't know it, it's probably wrong to be honest i i i'm i'm not really sure what's going on there but um i i i get this like thing in my gut that there's a sort of like i don't know if it's ex if it really like corresponds but that there's a sort of like base superstructure thing going on with state power sometimes that like I know it's not like the traditional way of stating things, not the traditional way like the way being talked about in the article, but like like when you look at like property law or something like that, which is like a classical example of of legal superstructure, right? There does seem to be something like underneath it that is like I don't know distinct, and it occurs. Like you, you, you see it in, in particular in instances when the constitution doesn't actually match reality, right? So in the Mexican constitution, there's some fairly radical like labor protections, like protection of the right to strike. I mean, I guess, you know, for the time it was, the constitution was found in 1917. And then there's also like restrictions on, you know, people from not that aren't from Mexico and owning land. Now, I don't I don't know much about the current reality of Mexico in that regard, but I'd be very surprised if they were very scrupulous about upholding those laws. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, it's like, OK, it's 
it's written. It it is written. It is written indeed. But it's not really corresponding to the relationship underneath. And to me, that kind of is the reason that one would entertain accidentally reifying the split is because it's like it's useful in analysis because it's like socially real. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's it's something that you f you can feel. Like imagine the Soviet constitution when they implemented the Soviet constitution, like what changed? Like did people get new abilities because there was a constitution because they had the right to now. And so the ability underneath. Yeah. They, think, they, think that they upgraded. Think, think that piece of paper is protecting you, man. Think you, you know, got rights. <laughs> I mean, when you're talking about the Soviet Constitution and the rights that were promised by Stalin, I think it's, you know, fair to ask that question. Right. Like, um, and so there is like, a, a, I don't know, sometimes, sometimes a constitution is like, you know, functioning merely as superstructure. And sometimes there's some sort of real gain in society that is reflected in, in a new law or something like the right to strike being. I don't know, the right to strike in the Mexican constitution, but then, you know, society can shift underneath it and make it void. Right. I, like, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's basically like you have to have mechanisms to really like have the constitution be like meaningful and you have to have like sort of class struggle behind it to really make, make it meaningful, I guess, like, you know, mass popular struggle is what like made like you know made uh suffrage universal you know that kind of thing that's what made it universal was generally class struggle on the part of the charitist movement in the uk and like other countries is just these working class movements demanding universal suffrage as a means of of you know asserting class class dominance in the state well, so like the like, the state creates the conditions for the market by enforcing property rights, right? No state, no property rights, no free market, no capitalism. Um, so like I could see why even you see like throughout, you know the, we'll say tributary societies or whatever, basically settled agricultural societies. You know there it, there does have to be this function of. Th because because people are tied to particular areas of land and in principle bandits could come in and raid and just steal their shit at harvest most a bunch of their shit at harvest time and they're fucked you need to have you know a separate kind of like class of people who can permanently sort of keep the peace and ensure those property rights for people right so it makes sense like in settled agricultural society that would be the case um but with capitalism it becomes more arbitrary i think because you have like technological development and production to such a high degree and global integration of, you know, production chain, supply chains and economic interdependence and specialization. And, and the amount of people working in agriculture is increasingly small relative to the total population. Like you might as well just go ahead and just like, really does, this, this can all just kind of be integrated and managed. Like it doesn't have, you don't have to have like these into like, individual like private actors like controlling either small or massive sectors of the economy pretty much i mean they do they are subject to the imperatives to make more money 
but it's still they, there is kind of this you know these private tyrannies and personality cults and shit like that um like the the, the shift in the material base and like technological capacity of the society have made it such that private property becomes you know a less and less socially necessary thing does that make sense i don't know like yeah like it's hard for me to say whether i think that sort of like runs with the spirit of her work or not like how do you how do we think that compares to like her position yeah i have no fuck i mean i feel like she i feel like she wants to say that they could have had like like non-private property societies under like settled settled agriculture pretty much anywhere if if there if the balance of class forces had like tipped the right way for the peasants mm -hmm. yeah I, mean... I i understand why, why you'd say that because of the insistence against teleology the insistence on contingency mm -hmm. uh, so it's like even when you know we do want to be critical of of teleology but like um I don't know. Our episode on Samir Amin gives you like a pretty decent, like universal teleology. And then I know it's like absurd to even insist on there being anything like that because, you know, things can end, historical processes can end. And like it's dumb to compare it to an abstract schema and be like, oh, it never got there. The point is that there's, there's a thing and you kind of analyze the thing for what it is. But like materially speaking, what Samir Amin offers is a pretty like decent, you know, schema for like what material, I don't know, factors of material reproduction, the, the kind of like sequence that you could get, you know, it's not to say that this teleology applies to every society all the time. It's more like it's a global dynamic that's like offered by the way everything's interacting, the way technology has affected world horizons. I so I just want to say I don't I don't want to commit to saying that that's what Wood thinks. I don't know that. I haven't studied enough of her work to say that, but that's the impression I get like looking at this and having read a little bit of, of her other stuff. Um, yeah, but I could I could I could definitely I could definitely be wrong on that on that statement. So how, sure. how could third world just hate that if that's the case? You know, like how can Mao yeah, say yeah. that? Like, um, I don't know. I I feel compelled to defend G. A. Cohen in these situations. You know, labor is a uh, labor power is a productive force. You know, human creativity is a big part of you know what shapes everything. It's not just technology. I guess um, it's interesting. Wood says that that you know, Marxism has a quintessentially political character, but I think her project here is actually a good step in the direction uh, of stepping back for an all of society view. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is the antagonisms that we're looking for lie within capitalist society as a whole, um, not, to the, not in the political state, which oftentimes political revolutions simply consecrate in legal form uh, what's already been uh, developed uh, and the pretense to power overall and actually existing inertia. I mean, if you look at what happened to the Bolsheviks uh, and the 
the inability for something to to kind of land without the social. Um, it's clear that capitalist society in full is what's in contradiction and what's pregnant with the possibility for communism. There is a point where she sort of submits that, you know, like the state is just this big concentrated power. It's like the most powerful thing. And I, I guess the um, a point of view that's doing base superstructure, it's actually sort of undercutting the authority of the state in, in world affairs um, in a way that I feel like is honest and the state states are powerful. And um, I don't know, I don't want to like underestimate it, but it's, it's possible to overestimate what a state can do in our discussions on totalitarianism. It frequently comes up that even a state that, you know, is trying to control everything can't really you know? <laughs> yeah. like, and that's true, but that's but that's true because of of a basic sort of categorical relationship that I think some of these like more orthodox forms of historical materialism get at better. And yeah. you know, like the, but the, I guess what I'll say though is that you can't really dismiss a lot of the overall insights of Wood, and like and Wood is the, one of the most readable of the Brennerites. Well, maybe a bit more sophisticated than post politically. Um, her books on on class are, you know, like essential that they came up in our post-owned discussion. Read this um, book and read Origins of Marx of uh, Capitalism. I'm sorry. Read Origins of Capitalism. Read this book. This this is good stuff. Apparently, retreat from class is supposed to be good. Yeah, I mean, oh, all, it, all of it, her it, stuff looks interesting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we should do more of her. Yeah, and uh, and she's recently deceased. So R.I.P. Yeah, yeah. R.I.P. Queen. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I like I like Wood. Um. Yeah, so I yeah. I definitely have a lot of respect for her 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 approach to things, and yeah, basically writing about this stuff like a normal like a normal like a normal ass person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, trying basically trying to. I mean, it's it's interesting reading it because it's kind of it's separate from any kind of it. It doesn't feel like a product of its time to me, the way that a lot of other stuff that we read it is. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, sometimes reading it, you also kind of wonder how important and how many how just how academic some of these questions really are, you know? Because towards the end, it she seems to try and get a little bit of. Um, little bit of juice going you know like this this and this is important because it will help us to blah 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 and i wonder i'm like if we answer these questions would that really help us <laughs> like like how, how much how uh how important is this really i mean i mean i love this shit don't get me wrong but it I, it it doesn't um i think it's better if it's if it just kind of like maintains that dispassionate stance and doesn't uh, doesn't try yeah. to tip into the things that other people are better at, you know. Well, that's right. any that, piece that's of theory. The joke yeah. about, oh, yeah. so, no, that's sort of the joke about you know not trying to analyze things at different levels. You know, she's very insistent that we don't do this because this is sort of a form of bourgeois bourgeois reification. But like, you analyze things at different levels because it makes sense to. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. you see things in I don't know, like. 
I forget how that was relating to your point, but it felt very relevant. It seemed like right, I no, felt like it was going sense, somewhere. Because this whole essay starts out with like, you know, we've got to stop with this bourgeois sociology where we're separating the economic and the political. And then the rest of the essay practically is, you know, and obviously she does a good job of saying they're interconnected. You can't have, you can't view society and politics out, like outside of each other and their relationship in capitalism. But she goes about just kind of showing how this this distinction into spheres is actually quite helpful and <laughs> historically accurate. It seems like that's like the whole project. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really. I mean, like, and I who was it that did this? Was it? It wasn't Campanu. It was um the East German dude. Um, God, what was his name? East, I, I, the the guy who went kind of green like towards the end of his life forget his name anyway that guy we can add him in later <laughs> um yeah. that hold, guy had, hold, hold for edits yeah yeah One, please hold two, um so basically that guy <laughs> um in his in his book he um he has that concept of different like class relations building up over history wasn't this part <laughs> wasn't uh the separation of the political and economic spheres like and they're like relative you know locations throughout different modes of production part of that like isn't this something that gets mentioned in the better forms of historical materialism like you know i think you can have a lot of these insights with base and superstructure you just have to like be careful with them just don't yeah just don't use it shitty yeah and I, that's uh, one to grow on yeah i don't know Sometimes I feel like the base and superstructure, uh, and that the the framework can be kind of crude and slightly problematic. But you know, I I feel like much of this is sort of like a straw man, like against it. And honestly, I I don't feel that convinced. Even though she does lay down some interesting arguments and analysis, I I just I I don't feel that she like conveys she doesn't like you know uh sort of like get the argument down even though she made like some valid points right yeah the historical stuff in here is the best stuff the part where she's basically breaking down like the for the relationship between the economic and the political and how they've shifted in class society across history oh that's really great um this, yeah, the stuff, and I think she was, she got some interesting stuff talking about, um, you know, that, the social nature of production at the base, like that, how, how those social configurations are part of the base. Uh, I don't think she, yeah, I agree that, like, the stuff on the base superstructure, I wasn't feeling as much. Um, and I think that it's one of those things where it's, a lot of times it just seems like it's a way of saying that. You know, there's these, there's there are these underlying material forces behind these maybe more um, abstract phenomena that we see that are apparent, like in capitalist society, and that's often what the what the base structure, superstructure dichotomy is used to refer to, and that can, you know, that can be at least colloquially like that's, and that can apply at any like number of levels. But you know how to. I get it's, another, it's an entirely different question of how to integrate like base and superstructure into an overall you know Marxist framework and how it would fit in exactly. And um, yeah, and I don't I don't know. Again, I wish 
I wish I was more familiar with G.A. Cohen because maybe I could speak to this debate a little better. Um, but I, I, I did re read this. Read yeah, I did read the When I was reading this, I did feel like maybe this guy wasn't getting a completely fair shake. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. If you'd like to support the show, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon. Check out our social media. Uh, send us some money through PayPal. Swampsidechance at gmail.com. That's the same email address you can get a hold of us. Um, you can also just message us on Twitter or Facebook or any of the other any other social media sites. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.